there are two more factors of the first meditative absorption and two more hindrances that they can counteract. Together with the pleasant sensation, joy arises, a feeling which is an emotion, but it isn't predominant at that time, but the very pleasant sensation cannot help but arouse a joyful emotion. The predominant factor at this time is the sensation, the sensation which I described already this morning, which can have different ways of manifesting, but it's always extremely pleasant. Now the joy which arises gives a very effective antidote against restlessness and worry, which is our fourth hindrance. And restlessness is a factor which is in every ordinary person because one hasn't found complete <coughs> fulfillment. Obviously, not having found complete fulfillment, there is the wish to do something else. Now that wish can manifest in the thoughts going from here to there, as they are apt to do in meditation, it can manifest in the body going from here to there as one travels around, as one moves from one place to another. It can manifest in changing outward conditions, outer conditions, changing one's place of residence and changing one's work or whatever it is that one has the ability to change. The most predominant factor of restlessness is the mind because you can't do anything except when you follow the mind. So the restless mind is a result of our not being fulfilled. When there is complete fulfillment, there's nowhere to look for anything. And what we're looking for is inner joy and harmony and peace. And since the world at large and practically everybody thinks that one can get it out there, one's got to go after it in some manner or form. And as one goes after it, the movement of mind translates into movement of body. That's why the freeways are full of cars, the airports are full of people, and everywhere one goes, people are going from here to there. When one sees all the cars going, constantly moving, one can't help but wonder where's everybody going, except one wouldn't be seeing them if one wasn't going oneself. <laughs> so where's everybody going? One wonders. It's all being justified. 
One's got to go there and one's got to go here. But it's interesting to note that if the practice becomes really fulfilling and successful, the wish to move is removed because there's nowhere to go. The earth is round and there's no place that's any better than another. And the mind loses its wish to move because it has found what it was after. Now here in the very first absorption, this is of course very temporary, that it has found what it's after. But the joyful feeling does remove the restlessness at that time, very temporarily, it's an antidote for it and it also results again in the understanding if one pays attention as one is supposed to that whatever it is that one was looking for one's got it within anyway there's nowhere to look for it except inside it's all there it just needs to be uncovered that is of course a major breakthrough when one not just assumes it, knows it, reads it, but explains it. The breakthrough is enormous. And the restlessness, which only disappears completely for the fully enlightened one, at least gets a little bit diminished. Because one knows that there is a place to find that inner joy but one needn't go anywhere for it and just got to stop the mind from going somewhere if everybody were to find that our economy would collapse so it's absolutely guaranteed very few people find it the worry part is always about the future and some people are professional worriers and they do this very well they can worry about anything but that's an extreme they find life difficult but most people are worried about things which they think are justifiably worrisome it's always the future so the moment of being fully absorbed in meditation obviously eliminates that right then and there one can't be fully absorbed in meditation and still worry there's no way to do that and again the understanding arises that there's no need to worry about anything because we've got it already within that which would eliminate or worries but since it's very temporary and most people don't meditate all day and even those who do meditate longer periods not many of them do it properly the worry always re-arises and the best antidote 
for both of these in daily life is, of course, attention to what's really happening. If we are mindful and attentive, there's nothing to be restless or worried about. Restlessness means that we're not paying attention and worry is about the future. Buddha compared restlessness and worry to being a slave or being pushed around by them. We have no jurisdiction at all. We can't choose. They choose for us. It's not very pleasant, is it, to be under the sway of a very unpleasant master that pushes us from worry to restlessness and back to worry again. Most people don't ever realize that they could take that in hand and stop it. But if we get the meditation to that point where we can at least get to the first absorption, we have a handle on it. We can see that there's something we can do. It doesn't have to continue that way. Some people or lots of people enjoy restlessness because it at least in an affluent society takes them from here to there they get to see this um, little planet of ours and it's a very popular pastime isn't it and uh, it's still not satisfactory one can go around this little planet of ours again and again and again and it looks the same again and again and again it doesn't do a thing for one even though customs and uh, morals of societies are different in different places that kind of attraction cannot substitute for inner joy and inner peace it's nothing but sense contact again One day, having been restless long enough, one realizes it's another escape mechanism, trying to get away. Trying to get away from what? Well, from Dukkha, of course, which everybody has and which is not eliminated through moving. But it is covered over through moving. Just like impermanence is covered over through continuity, so dukkha is hidden through movement. Exactly what we do when we get a pain in the knee, move. For the moment it's gone. But we get it again, well that's unfortunate, isn't it? So we've got to move again. And so we keep on moving. But eventually, there's nowhere to move to anymore. But that needs diligent and continual practice to see that. Eventually, when the body gets old, maybe the body can't move, but the mind still moves. If we stop moving outwards and start moving inwards, we find exactly what we've been looking for. But perseverance, patience and determination because it isn't just open 
to walk into. Unfortunately, we have covered over the entrance. We've messed it up. But what we have messed up ourselves, we can, of course, also clean up again, which we're trying to do through meditation. The Buddha also recommended as an antidote for this fourth hindrance of ours to learn more about the Dhamma, to realize that the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, shows a different direction, and learning more about it, trying to practice it. The learning about the teaching is the very first step. And that can be done through hearing or reading. But it doesn't yet accomplish anything. The next step is remembering. And if one can't remember, one is lost anyway. Nothing to be done at those um, clay vessels with holes and cracks. But if one can remember, it still isn't enough. Having remembered, one's got to do it. And having done it, one has to review it. In other words, whatever one has remembered, then having practiced it, one has to look back and have a review on it and see, was this the way it was taught? Did I follow it? Did it have a result? Did it really do what it promised to do for me? One has to do that over and over again. And eventually it becomes priority. Because what other thing has anybody in their mind as priority except having inner joy, peace, and happiness? But, outwardly out there it's not available if it were available we would have had it by now we've been all looking long enough giving enough time energy attention and money for it the common antidote for all our hindrances are noble friends and noble conversations now all the hindrances have separate antidotes and each one of the meditative factors is a separate, separate antidote for one of the hindrances. But they all have that in common. So you can see how important it is, what kind of people we associate with. The kind of people that we associate with also determine our conversations. And the kind of conversation that we do have determine the kind of input we have in the mind. Now, nobody in their right mind would ever eat anything that's either dirty, polluted, or poisonous, because they know very well, everybody knows, that this would be very detrimental to one's body, to one's well-being. But we don't watch the input into the mind with that same diligence. We don't watch out that it's never polluted or 
has any kind of dirt on it or can be poisonous for us. We are not that choosy. We don't realize that it hurts us. So our input into the mind which we get through talking, reading the media and our thinking is at least as important, if not more so, than the health food we might buy in the health food store. There's nothing said to be said against health food from the health food store. But health food for the mind has even more priority. And our conversations are really one of the most important aspects of feeding our mind. Because a lot of those take place every day. And if we don't converse with another, we very often converse with ourselves. And the kind of conversation that we have determines the kind of thought that will follow. So noble friends and noble conversations as an antidote for all our hindrances means that we really look for people who have a spiritual path in mind and practice it, who have already, hopefully, gone one step ahead of us and thereby can be helpful to us to show us the pitfalls, to make us aware of any dangers and to show us the best way to go. But there's another injunction entailed in that, namely to be a noble friend and to have noble conversations with others. For a meditator, that is a very important aspect. To become a noble friend means it's far easier to have noble friends. It's just an echo that we get. And the conversations that we hold will bring about the responses that we get. Now a noble conversation is one which is uplifting, enlightening, which will help us to see things in a new light, which will give us new ideas which are more profound than the ones we've had, which will explain things which are a little hard to understand, and which will have a feeling of direction in them. All of them must contain the wholesome aspect of thinking and the wholesome aspect of emotion. Which means that our <coughs> impulsive and instinctive conversation are a thing of the past. We've got to watch them. If we want to be on a spiritual journey, if we realize that 
the material journey is going anywhere, that it is a dead end street, then mindfulness of our conversation is just as important. We watch it, we think about it, and see that it has those aspects. And a noble friend is one who is reliable under any circumstances, whether the circumstances are favorable or not. Not a fair weather friend, but one who is helpful at any time, who does not try to get out of helping, but offers help, even when it's difficult to do. A noble friend, the Buddha said, is someone who will do what is difficult to do, who will give what is difficult to give, who will endure what is difficult to endure. It is one who will tell one what his secrets and also one that we can tell our secrets to, being completely sure that they are not going to be told to others. A noble friend is one whose lifestyle has virtue in it so that we can use that as a model. All of that is an injunction for us to become noble friends. And, of course, to look for those people who can help us. It is much more fulfilling to have a conversation about subjects which touch one in their depth and profundity rather than to talk about the superficial aspects of the material life. What to buy, where to go, what anybody said, how they looked, does it really matter? It doesn't help us <coughs> in any manner or form. Conversations are our, that aspect of us which is connected with the precept of speech. And uh, I will talk about that more when I will talk about the precept because that particular one is also mentioned by the Buddha many times because we usually do a lot of speaking not particularly so when we're in a silent meditation course but ordinarily in our daily lives we talk and if we use our ability to think and talk for the purpose of uplifting or for the purpose of helping, for the purpose of creating a new depth, we will be also having the ability to have real friends. Ananda was another cousin of the Buddha, but this one was the good cousin 
Devadatta was the bad one. And Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years. And one time Ananda said to the Buddha, Sir, a good friend is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the holy life. To have a good friend is thereby said to be the most important thing that one can have on the spiritual path. Someone one can confide in with all one's difficulties and know that it's not going to be used against one. Someone that is having the understanding of the spiritual path and can show the way. It's called in Pali a Kalyana Mitta. Mitta is friend. And Kalyana is the usually translated as the meditation friend. It doesn't mean that exactly, but that's what the connotation is, that it's a spiritual friend, very often also meant to be the meditation teacher, but of course such a one is not always available. So the friendship that we have can be our greatest asset, but in order to have such good friends, we have to be such a good friend. We don't get what we don't give. There's nothing for free. So if we give it, it's most likely to come back to us. In fact, our own way of being a good friend has already embedded in it that karyanamitta, that helpfulness, that care and concern. A real friend is one who is always available, not when it's convenient. And that is one of the features it's hard to find. Someone one can always rely on. We can make ourselves such a friend to be always available, not when it's convenient only and to be always reliable. This is the antidote for all the hindrances, the common antidote, and the whole of the spiritual life. Because without that kind of friendship, we will always be wondering whether what we are practicing is actually correct, whether it's getting us anywhere, and whether we shouldn't go somewhere else for some new instructions. A kind of mountain climbing, which instead of going straight up, goes around and around the mountain, looking for an easier way or a better way to get up there. If we share our spiritual path with a good friend, it has far more incentive in it. Group energy 
is very helpful. And if it's one good friend, it's already very helpful. Several can be very helpful too. This kind of um, relationship is the most important relationship that we can have on the spiritual path, that of a noble friend, and learning to be one. Learning to be one by recognizing all the factors which make up that kind of nobility. The Buddha did not believe in a caste system. The Buddha did not believe in inherited nobility. He said, only the one who practices can become noble. He mentioned that many times because the caste system was and is strong in India and of course it's not only strong there. Becoming noble is a matter of purity. So we have all the ways and means at hand which we can use, the method, to do that. And anyone we can help on the way is already an expression of being a noble friend. But for the restlessness and worry, the Buddha also recommended not just noble friends and noble conversation, but also associating with wise people. So on top of that, another manner of having togetherness with kind of people that have wisdom. Sometimes people say that's very difficult to find. But it depends entirely what are the priorities in one's life. If one has a certain way of organizing one's life with the priorities towards spiritual life, it's bound to happen that one gets together with people who have wisdom along that way. If we haven't got people, the next best thing would be books. Books which really have universal wisdom and traditional universal wisdom, not newly fashioned. The traditional human wisdom has always been around. We are no different from the people two and a half thousand years ago or five thousand years ago. The traditional human wisdom has always found the truth. If we can have no human companionship of wisdom, then we can find it there. The um, fifth factor of meditative absorption is again a factor which is necessary and present in any meditation which can be called meditation, namely one-pointedness, ekagata. 
the five factors that are present in the first meditative absorption where the first two are present even at the start initial and sustained application in Pali Vitaka Vichara then the pleasant sensation Piti which is a Pali word for that pleasantness or blissfulness blissful is more an emotion rapture also maybe a very strong word and sukha the joy the opposite of dukkha and ekagata the one-pointedness which is again present in all meditations of course if we are only one-pointed one second all right then we have only concentration one second but if we don't have any one-pointedness at all, we're not meditating. We're learning to sit, maybe. That's also true. It's all right. We've got to learn to sit one day. So, but one-pointedness of mind is an absolute essential for the meditative practice. And that's why meditation trains the mind. In Pali, meditation is called bhavana which literally translated means mind training we're training the mind if the mind doesn't learn to be one point it's obviously scattered that's the opposite of being one point it's scattered so a scattered mind of course makes life very difficult because we don't know which way to look if we have that one pointedness available to us it counteracts effectively the first hindrance the desire for sensual gratification our desire for sensual gratification is always present when the mind is scattered when the mind is one-pointed it's impossible now in order to have any kind of meditative successful to say we have to be removed from sensual desire we have to let go of sensual desire because we can't have a meditative process going on and at the same time wanting to eat or wanting to hear something nice or wanting to be more comfortable it's impossible to have all that at the same time it's either or so in order to become absorbed in one's meditation all the sensual desire has to be abandoned for the time being and this is one of the most effective ways of recognizing what our senses are doing to us they're constantly fooling us because what we really want we're getting only without sensual gratification and so it is an extremely helpful insight to recognize the fact that if we abandon the desire for sensual gratification we're getting exactly what we were looking for through the sense namely inner joy 
and in peace. The desire for sensual gratification was compared by the Buddha to being in debt. We are in debt to our senses, just like having a debt at the bank. If we have a debt at the bank, we have to keep going there every month and pay with interest. At the bank, we have a slight chance of paying off one day. With the senses, we don't have a chance of paying that debt off unless we stop it ourselves. The debt is there because having had a gratification of a sense contact, that vanishes again. And we've got to get it again and again and again. Just look at eating for a moment. What you've had yesterday had to be repeated today and again tomorrow and for the rest of your life. The same with what we see. What we see and what is pleasant, what is beautiful, we can't keep seeing it. In fact, we couldn't handle it. It would be impossible. All the sense contacts have to be fleeting because the mind cannot digest them if they remain around. In fact, they become very unpleasant. Same goes for hearing, touching, anything. It's got to be repeated. And because we have, until the moment that the mind is finally able to find that inner home, believed that the only way we can get happiness is through the senses, we're willing to pay with interest. Just as we're willing to pay with interest and we take a mortgage on our house. We need ours, so we're willing to pay with interest. This is what we think we have to get through the senses, so we pay with interest. The interest in this case is the fact that what we have already known over and over again is no longer satisfying. It's got to be something else. And so with the restlessness, and the sense desire, we are all over the place. If you'd like to watch some birds tomorrow, instead of thinking, how pretty, and nice song, and very good looking, nice feathers, and then giving them a name, whatever their name has, happens to be, and maybe looking whether they have a companion, just watch their movements, how they look around all the time out of fear that something bigger might hurt them, how they're looking around for food, how they're hopping from one branch to the next, flying off and coming back, and then related to the human condition. Constant movement. All dukkha. Nice birds, but all dukkha. It just depends which way we look, whether we want to see the truth or try to cover it up as long as we can 
and only be faced with it when what happens what we call tragedy or when we can't get any more what we want at all and look for the escape route. Essential desire, the Buddha compared also to a water pond into which many different colors have been thrown so that the water is no longer clear for us to see our likeness. If we get really enraptured and passionate about what we want, we can't see anything except that what we want. Sensual desire is our least understood and most difficult hindrance to eliminate because of the fact that we need our senses for survival. And because of the fact that we do have pleasant sense contacts a lot and always get caught in the idea that that's what we ought to have and that's what we ought to get, a pleasant sense contact, seeing we're nice people, so why shouldn't we have all these pleasantnesses? And if we can afford it, even more so. And also, because sometimes they're easily available and seem to bring something which has a moment of pleasure with it. But what we don't know and don't pay attention to is how it actually operates. It's very difficult to see because we don't take time enough time to pay attention to ourselves. We think we do. We, maybe we sit at an ocean and watch the sun, sunset. Very nice. So we have taken time and we enjoy it. And we feel very nice about the sunset. So now we think we need sunsets to feel nice about. Well, it's obviously absurd, isn't it? that one needs sunset, sunsets to feel good about oneself. What one should have done during that time is watch how it actually works. The eye sees color and shape. And from that, the mind translates it into something. The first thing that happens is a feeling arises. And with that feeling, comes then the explanation and with the explanation comes the reaction sunset nice color so good feeling perception says sunset reaction must come here every evening must be the answer to my dukkha seeing sunset of course there isn't a sunset every evening sometimes it's clouded over more often than not, probably, yeah. So, it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> what we can really see it very easily is when we get a pain in the, in the knee from sitting. Sense, contact, unpleasant feeling, 
perception, pain, reaction, I've got to go. The opposite of the other one which had a pleasant feeling, I want to keep it. This is what happens all the time, from morning to night, day in and day out. And we've got to pay and pay again because we have to run after those pleasant sense contacts because we do get as many that are unpleasant. And every time we get another one and react with either, that's a good one, I like it, I want to keep it, or that's a bad one, I don't like it, I don't want to keep it, yet it should get away from me. Every time we do that, we have already lost that round because we've again caught in hate and greed, in wanting that which is pleasant and rejecting that which is unpleasant. And as long as we think that we can actually <coughs> solve the human problem through our sense contacts, we are lost in the whole mire of existence in where there's never an escape route. The sense contact can never do it. And yet, we think our senses are there to have a, a funfair. They're supposed to be the answer but they can't do it. They're a survival mechanism. Much easier to live when you can see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Very difficult when you can't do those things. This is a survival mechanism, nothing else. That's what we have them for. Now that doesn't mean that a beautiful sunset is not beautiful. The disappointments just waiting around the corner. The one-pointedness that we experience in meditation, even for one single moment, eliminates the desire for that single moment. And if we build up on those single moments and have more and more of them, obviously we eliminate the desire more and more during the meditation. And then our understanding comes from the fact that we have had what we were looking for through the senses totally independent of them. And when we can become independent of our sense contacts and are strictly dependent only upon our concentration ability, we have a feeling of freedom. There's a complete freedom inside because we know that the dependence that we have on the world around us, on the people around us, on the situations around us is no longer there. We've been able to get rid of that at least during the meditation time. But it has a residual effect because what we experience changes us. It has to. Whatever we have experienced and have understood it, that changes us. Only the understood experience can change us. 
if we explain something and don't understand it, it's useless. It's like a small child putting its hand on a hot stove and getting burned and having no idea that that pain comes from the hot stove. So obviously it's going to do it again. Only when it has been told and has, has understood that that is the danger point will it keep its hands off the hot stove. The understood experience is that what changes our inner being and our behavior, our actions, our thoughts. So the, all the experience, all five factors of the first meditative absorption, not only being antidotes for the five hindrances, but they're also, when they're understood, give us an insight into what is really important in life. There's another injunction about our sense contacts and that is the analysis which is the, in the Buddhist teaching quite important that if there's something that we really desire and we get quite passionate about it to analyze it into its part and not become carried away by the whole. Which he symbolized by saying that a cult actually is only a cult when the wheels and the axle and the body and the brake have all been put together. Until then, it's wheels and axle and body and brake and all the rest that makes up a cart. But the word cart only appears when those pieces have been put into a whole. It's the same with a person. And I will mention some way, some meditative techniques to you where you can use that as an understanding of the analysis of at least the body but also the analysis of the mind which takes away a little bit of our idea that there is a solid being here called me which is the thing that creates all our problems because if we didn't have this solid person being me who would be wanting or rejecting, being afraid or worried or restless, having desires or anger, nobody there to do it. So we'll have some, tomorrow, not now, some uh, meditation possibilities to see how we can understand that better from an experiential standpoint. And just to recapitulate once more as soon as concentration really comes together we are having automatic antidotes against our hindrances the hindrances being part of every human being's makeup have no blame 
And also, unfortunately, there's no exception. We've all got it. And meditation, therefore, is not just something like another hobby or something one does when one has a little extra time or something that could possibly bring a bit of peacefulness but it it is the most important purification system that we can ever find naturally we have to support it in daily life with the other methods which I've already explained that's enough for this evening we have questions now is the time to ask Dependent arising means that we understand ourselves from the depths of having the conditions which make this human being. But the word independent, in the way I was using it, means that we are independent of other people's emotions, approval, appreciation, that we are independent of the contact that we make with the senses, and that we are independent of all the outer conditions which are supposed to make us happy. It hasn't got anything to do with dependent arising. Of course, we are dependently arisen. But while we are dependently arisen, we're constantly looking for happiness. And if we finally find that we can get happiness independently of what's going on around us, we've got a big step already done. But it doesn't explain Paticca Samupada by any means. It doesn't explain the 12-point depend origination. That's a totally different subject. Go ahead. Well, there's just one thing connected with that, which is um, I don't mean the 12, the 12 inches of independent origination, but just in the simplest sense of dependent arising. Um, in, independent in the sense contact and um, the feeling of, of um, needing approval and so forth from others, uh, that I understand, but I have a, a way of working with that myself. Appreciation or gratitude maybe would be even better. Yes. 
gratitude for all the things that enable you to stay alive. Right? Is that what you said? To stay alive and also, uh, I think, um, more than that, probably even in the highest degree, which is Yes, certainly. It's very important to have that kind of gratitude in one's heart because it is a heart connection. And it's extremely important to have that rather than only understanding it with one's mind. The minute gratitude arises in one's heart, one has a totally different ability to take it in, Dhamma, and to know that one is alive. And that dependency for being alive, that is quite true. And that is, of course, a fact. And what you're doing is fine, it's excellent. I, I use it also for a meditation subject, gratitude. But in arising, there is a point. Dependarising shows us that we're going around in a circle, right? Twelve point depend origination goes around in a circle. The wheel of life and death. And it, there's one point where we can step out, only one point. And that one point is that the sense contact, which is being shown there as having um, arrows being shot into one's eyes, it's usually the picture that is shown, that that is the point where the sense contact is extremely unpleasant, that there's no craving coming after it. The minute we have already disliked that, which is obviously would dislike having arrows shot into our eyes, the minute we have done that, we have already passed the point of no return and are going back in the circle. So the sense contact in, and the non-craving, which is also the non-resistance, that moment is the doorway out, out of dependent arising. That is the only doorway out, except when complete because ignorance is completely eliminated, but that requires that step first. First, that the sense contacts are seen for what they are, and that the craving does not arise, because the next picture after, on that wheel of life and death, the next picture after is usually a person sitting at a banquet table and eating, 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 eating. And that's the craving. So, after the sense contact comes the desire to have or the desire to get rid of, and that's where we already lost. We've lost that line. So that's our way out. You understand that? Yeah, okay. But what you're saying about the uh, gratitude for all the things that make it possible for us to be alive is a very important aspect. It's very good, very important to do that. Okay, anything else? Yes. I, I have friends who <coughs> really enjoy traveling. And to bring back photographs of the airplane, the Judah, the Alps, the airport, other passengers, <coughs> dogs. <laughs> And <laughs> have great joy in showing these photos to people at great length. I've noticed that they don't do that to me, even though I'm with these people that they show these photos to. And 
thinking about what you said about the first Brahmas and Horus, I'm wondering if I'm lacking in that respect. And <laughs> you think they might have noticed that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't say whether you're lacking in that respect. I don't know you well enough. But uh, if they do that sort of thing, uh, yes, and if they are really enjoying what they're doing, one should have joy with them. That's quite true. One should be happy that they have that joy, even though it's a terrible bore. But... uh, (laughs) (laughs) One needs to learn patience in those uh, respects. And if they have uh, left you out of showing that, uh, maybe that is a possibility, I can't say. And if you think it might be, you might see whether you could uh, bring up some of that when you meet them next time. (laughs) But uh, one has to be careful with that oneself, that one doesn't bore people with one's photos, huh? Okay, anything else? Put your attention on the breath for just a few moments, please. Now look into your heart and see whether there are any hindrances there. Hindrances like worry, anxiety, restlessness, ill will. And if so, let them float away like a black cloud. Now visualize a warm golden light containing love and friendship, understanding, peace. Let it pervade you completely. Let it fill you from top to toe. Feel the warm glow of love. The calm of peace. Think of the person sitting next to you. Fill and surround this person 
with this golden light. Filling her or him with understanding, with peace and harmony. with care. Now let this golden light connect all of us. Let it flow through the room, filling and surrounding each other with friendship, with harmony, Think of your parents, whether they're alive or not. Think of them with respect, with gratitude for what they've done for you while you were still depending on them. Send them this golden light. Fill them with care. With love. Surround them with respect. Think of the people dearest and nearest to you. Open your heart and let this golden light reach out and fill them with love without asking anything in return.
Think of people you meet every day. People at work, in shops, in the street, neighbors, friends, acquaintances. Let the golden stream of light reach them too with your love, with your friendship, with your harmony. There might be someone whom you don't consider a friend at the moment. Someone you've had an argument with. Remember that an un- angry person is always an unhappy person. Forgive and forget, knowing that we all have the same problem. We all have the same mind. So let this golden light reach this person too. Give him or her your respect, your understanding, your friendship. Think of people who are not as fortunate as we are. People in prisons, in refugee camps, in hospitals. Sent this golden light to all these people. Let them share in peace, in friendship,
in your care. Think of people far and near. People here in the building, the managers taking care of us, people in the villages, in the cities, in this country and overseas. Fill and surround them with the golden light. Visualize this light surrounding our globe. As a golden mantle. Let this mantle go down slowly. And let it pervade all the beings on earth. Giving harmony and peace. Let it purify nature. your attention back on yourself. Feel the warm glow of care in your heart. The harmonious feeling of peace. Let it stay there, anchored in your heart.
May all people have love and peace in their hearts.